Micah chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Hear the words of the Lord. Now muster yourselves in troops, daughter of troops. They have laid siege against us. With a rod they will smite the judge of Israel on the cheek. But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you one will go forth from me, for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Therefore he will give them up until the time when she who is in labor has borne a child. Then the remainder of his brethren will return to the sons of Israel. And he will arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of Yahweh, in the majesty of the name of Yahweh his God. And they will remain because at that time he will be great to the ends of the earth. And this one will be our peace when the Assyrian, in, when the Assyrian invades our land, when he tramples on our citadels. Then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight leaders of men. And they will shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword, the land of Nimrod at its entrances. And he will deliver us from the Assyrian when he attacks our land and we, when he tramples our territory. Then the remnant of Jacob will be among many peoples, like dew from Yahweh, like showers on vegetation, which do not wait for man or delay for the sons of men. And the remnant of Jacob will be among the nations, among many peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among flocks of sheep, which, if he passes through, tramples down and tears, and there is none to rescue. Your hand will be lifted up against your adversaries, and all your enemies will be cut off. And it will be in that day, declares Yahweh, that I will cut off uh, your horses from among you and destroy your chariots. And I will, I will also cut off the cities of your land and tear down all your fortifications. I will cut off sorceries from your hand and you will have fortune tellers no more. I will cut off your carved images and your sacred pillars from among you so that you will no longer bow down to the work of your hands. I will root out your ashram from among you and destroy your cities. And I will execute vengeance and anger and wrath on the nations which have not obeyed. We'll turn now to the Gospel of John, chapter 16, and read verses 23 through 28. And in that day you will ask me no question. Truly, truly, I say to you, if you shall ask the Father for anything, he will give it to you in my name. Until now you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive, that your joy may be made full. These things I have spoken to you in figurative language. An hour is coming when I will speak no more to you in figurative language, but will tell you plainly of the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will re request the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me, and have believed that I came forth from the Father. I came forth from the Father, and have come into the world, I'm leaving the world again, and I'm going to the Father. If you would, please turn to the back of your bulletin. We'll read together as a congregation, Psalm 20. Psalm 20. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. May he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. Selah. 
May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. May we shout for joy over your salvation and in the name of our God, set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. O Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. This is the, na- this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Morning again. If you are one who uh, frequents the the blogs and debates of current conservative Christians, you'll find that a debate that's that's been increasing in fervor in the last couple years goes by the name of Christian nationalism. And Depending on who you've read and what you've read, you may have positive connotations, negative connotations, or none at all with that kind of phrase. And it's not a new debate. The content of it really has to do with how we as Christians should consider ourselves within a nation like the United States, like Great Britain. And our psalm today, um, at, at least we have to acknowledge that, that debate. I'm not going to untangle it all for you because it's co-opted on many sides to be a very broad range of muddy ideas. Um, so so it it'll takes quite a bit of picking through to, to take the good and not the bad. But in Psalm 20 and 21, what we find is that they are a congregational prayer, a blessing for the king. So if you've heard the, the, the National Anthem of England, it's based on these two psalms together, if you read all six verses, in which the most famous line is, God save the king. It comes from, from these psalms. And, and, and they're psalms that for us as Americans, they're a little bit further afoot when we think about praying together for the king, and specifically when we think about that in a national context. So we're going to come back to that as we we work through these psalms. And as a a side note, in Psalm 18, I took three weeks and and worked through three different perspectives on that psalm. But rightfully, when we consider the Psalter and how how the psalms are sung, we have to consider them in a whole slew of historical contexts. So how, how David, if they're written by David, would have sung them, and then how they're, how they're changed and added to in the, the exilic and post-exilic context, and then how they're sung by Christ, because every song can be formed on the lips of our Savior, and it gives you a fresh and a new thought about how to sing that song. But then at the end, we, do have, to, we have to answer the question, with all of those in mind, how do we, as the body of Christ, the church of the living God, come and sing this song? And that's what we're called to. So we're going to try to build through that quickly. I'm not going to take three weeks on Psalm 20. It's a nice short psalm, so it's, it's easy to, to think through quickly. But just, just by way of recollection, since it's been a couple weeks since we were in the Psalms, remember that Psalm 15 through 24 form a chiasm. And the, the, 
the bookends of that chiasm are about who can enter into God's house. So who can ascend and dwell on his holy hill? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. And this question looms over everything in between. Who can dwell? Who can enter into God's holy house? And the easy answer, of course, is Jesus. But just because it's easy, it's, a, it's, it's an important part of this string of psalms. And so in thinking through what, what goes on in the middle, the apex of this chiasm is Psalm 19, in which God proclaims that the sun goes forth, and in its, in its rising and in its setting, it proclaims the glory and the power of God, just as the word of God proclaims his goodness and his righteousness to all those that fall under its heat. And in between, then, we find the psalmist trusting and lamenting and thinking about God's promises. On the rising side of this apex, we looked at psalms that were individualistic in nature. So if you, if you sung those psalms, you read through them, they, they're sung in the first person, I, a singular of the first two psalms. So I want to remind us then by reading Psalm 2, and then we'll read Psalm 20 right on the back of that. So this is what Psalm 2 says. Why are the nations in an uproar, and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his anointed. Let us tear their fetters apart and cast their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. Yahweh, Yahweh scoffs at them. He'll speak to them in his anger, and he'll terrify them in his fury. As for me, I've installed my king upon Zion, my holy, my holy mountain. I'll surely tell of the decree of Yahweh. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I'll surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You'll shatter them like earthenware. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship Yahweh in fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry with you, and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Now, Psalm 20. May Yahweh answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob set you securely on high. May he send help from the sanctuary and support you from Zion. May he remember your meal offerings and find your ascension offerings fat, selah, May he grant you your heart and fulfill all your counsel. We'll sing for joy over your salvation, and in the name of our God, we'll set up our banners. May Yahweh fulfill all your petitions. Now I know that Yahweh saves his anointed. He'll answer him from his holy heaven with the saving strength of his right hand, some in horses and some in chariots. But we remember the name of Yahweh our God. They have bowed down and fallen, but we have risen and stand upright. Save, O Yahweh, may the King answer us in the day that we call. Let's pray. Lord, we come before your, this, your word this morning as you commanded to hear from you, to be edified and built up, to be cut apart where we need cut apart, and to know you, our Savior and our Lord. We call on your name this morning to be with us, to teach us, and to give us open ears to hear so that you might transform us into the pure and spotless bride of Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
So you'll notice in Psalm 20 that, as I've been saying, the congregation is singing. So they're singing, and they're singing properly to the king. So it takes the form primarily of a blessing upon the anointed one of Yahweh. So you hear them sing, may Yahweh answer you in the day of trouble. Well, they're talking then to this king. So the king is, is the one that's to go before God and pray, and the people are coming, and they're, they're lifting up their king to God, to the, the anointed man. May Yahweh answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob lift you up on high, and may he send you help from the sanctuary. So there's this blessing that permeates the psalm, and it takes the form of ten statements. The first nine of them come in, in the first five verses. And so you can see then this organization in which they appear in couplets. And these first five verses go together in which the congregation is lifting up the king. They're blessing him in the name of Yahweh. And then it seems as in verse 6 that the king responds. And so there is this response of confidence in which the king, it could be the priest, responds and says, Now I know. So you see the transition there to the first person from the first person singular from the first person plural. Now I know that Yahweh saves his anointed and he'll answer him from his holy heaven with the saving strength of his right hand. And then the congregation begins singing again. Some in horses, some in chariots, but we remember the name of Yahweh our God until there's finally the singular plea in this psalm. Save. Save, O Yahweh. And then the tenth the tenth blessing, may the king answer us, or may he answer us in the day that we call. So what I want to do as we, we think through this psalm, I'm going to point out some repetitions with this, within the psalm. We'll see how it's formed, and then think about the emphasis that we're called to. This is a psalm of David. It's written by David. And oddly, you know, if you think about who's singing... When David is alive, the congregation would be singing, and, and he is the anointed one. But in order to understand this psalm, we have to understand it in light of the promises of God from Psalm 2. There is a, a view to the future in which God has said, he told it to, to David in, in 2 Samuel 7, he made his covenant with him that you and your seed I will put upon the throne my anointed ones. And we see it in Psalm 2, God saying from his holy heaven in response to the wicked and the, the plots of the kings, he says, as for me, I've installed my king already on Zion, my holy hill. He's my anointed one. And so this prayer then is for that promised king. Now there are, there are reverberations of it through history before Jesus comes and after Jesus comes in which we can, we can sing this about other people. But we have to look at it in light of those promises. The promises of the coming anointed one who will rule from God's hill in righteousness and justice. And so for all those around, remember Psalm 2, the admonition is kiss the sun. Do homage to this son, to the anointed one, because God has made a promise. And this God keeps his promises. And so in Psalm 20, the, the psalm is perforated by the... What's the right word? I'm getting old. My dad's not here, so I now have to lose my words. 
by the phrase, the name of God. So you see it in verse, in verse 1, may the name of the God of Jacob set you securely on high. You see it again in verse 5, in the name of our God will set up our banners. And then again in verse 7, we will remember the name of Yahweh our God. And so throughout then we have, we have this reflection on the name of God, and it's one that, that runs through the whole Bible. We don't, we don't think about it actively all the time, but God refers to himself in this very strange fashion in which we're constantly called to call upon the name of, of Yahweh, to talk about the name of Yahweh. He says that I've set my name upon you. You're baptized into my name, and we have this, this ongoing emphasis on the name of God, and it's strange, at least in my mind, why he doesn't just always give that name. Why does he say, may the name of the God of Jacob set you on high, instead of just saying, may Yahweh set you on high. But there's this emphasis upon the name of God and its attachment to God's people, how we relate to that name, and how we have confidence in his promises through that name. From the very beginning of the Bible, well, not quite, so Genesis 4, we have the very first time at the end of Genesis 4, men begin to call on the name of Yahweh after the story of Cain and Abel. And that idea of calling on the name of Yahweh then runs through the Bible. We read in Joel, we read in Micah about that name, about those who call upon that name. And why it begins in Genesis 4, I'm not going to answer today. Instead, that's a question for the young people we're going to take up in our next study. Why did people begin to call on that name only then, only in Genesis 4? But for today, what I want to do is start with, with that, the essence of that name. So the very, first, the very first blessing there, he says, May Yahweh answer you in the day of trouble. And then parallel to that, may the name of the God of Jacob set you on high. Who is this God of Jacob? And who is the name of the God of Jacob? Turn with me to Exodus 3, passage we know well. Or should know well. Moses has come before the Lord, and he's taken off his sandals, he's, he's on holy ground, and Moses is talking to God, and in verse 13, Moses says to God, Behold, I'm going to the sons of Israel, and I shall say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, What is his name? It's a strange thing to say. This God that we, we saw 50 chapters in Genesis, there's already been hundreds of years in history, and Moses says, Well, what are they going to call you? What is his name? What shall I say to them? If you think through the book of Genesis, when God talks to his people, you find the name El Elohim. You find Abraham calling upon God Almighty, El Elyon. You find Jacob. He wrestles with God at Peniel, and he wrestles with him. And, and what's his question? What is your name? And God gives no answer. He doesn't answer. Instead, God gives a name to Jacob, and in some sense, he remains nameless. And so after that encounter in Genesis, in, in, in Genesis uh, Jacob sets up an altar, and he sets up that altar to El Elohi Israel, God, the God of Israel. But Elohim, or El, 
while it, it can be a name of God, it's one that's shared by others. So other, others are called Elohim. Other gods, other men are called Elohim. So it's not quite the same as what we see in this passage. And then you fast forward through, through Genesis and you see and El Shaddai. So uh, an, another reference to the might of the creating God or the God of the mountain. But it's only here in Exodus 3, Moses comes and he says, all right, I'm going to go talk to the people and they're going to say, what is his name and what shall I tell them? And in verse 14, God says to Moses, I am who I am. Or you could translate it, I am who I was, or I am who I will be, or I was who I am, or I will be who I am. There is an eternalness to to God. And he says, this is what you'll tell them. This is who I am. I am who I am. Now, if we say that, it it seems a a little grandiose as a name. And in some sense, it's open. God's saying, I am. There is none apart from me in the very essence of his name. And so he tells... tells, uh, Moses, go to the people, and thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And God furthermore, verse 15, said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you, and this is my name forever, and this is my memorial to all generations. Again, we can read, if you flip over a few chapters to chapter 6, Then Yahweh said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for under compulsion he shall let them go, and under compulsion he shall drive them out of his land. God spoke further to Moses and said to him, I am Yahweh. And he appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, El Shaddai. But by my name, Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. I established my covenant with them and gave them the land of Canaan, the land in which they sojourned. Furthermore, I have heard the groaning of the sons of Israel because the Egyptians are holding them in bondage, and I have remembered my covenant. So therefore, to the sons of Israel, I am Yahweh, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from their bondage, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm, with great judgments. Then I will take you from, for my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am Yahweh your God, who brought you out from under the burden of the Egyptians, and I will bring you to the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will give it to you for a possession. I am Yahweh. So as you think about the fundamental meaning of that name that God gives his people, he says, This is my my name of remembrance, by which you shall call upon me. The essence of that name, I am who I am, I was who I am, I am who I will be. You can interchange any of the tenses you want. This God does not change. And so the essence of that unchangingness of God is that he always remembers his covenant. And this this is important in this psalm. God remembers his covenant. So he says, you will call me by my name Yahweh. I am Yahweh, your God. I will be your God. You will be my people. And he says that, why am I giving you this now? Because I remember my covenant. I will call you out of this land. I promise to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob that I would give them this land, that I would make them a nation, that I would make their name great. And I'm fulfilling my promise under my name, I am who I am. I will not change. 
And so he says this is a name of remembrance, and it's based upon the fact that God remembers. So keep that in your mind. We'll come back to, to our psalm today. May Yahweh answer you in the day of trouble, and may the name of the God of Jacob set you on high. This is very simple, but we have to remember it. As we call upon God, God wants us to ask of him, to call upon him to fulfill the very things he promised. For us, this is not always that easy. We, 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 we're thinking a little more minutely, and that's not wrong, but it should be grounded in his covenant-keeping nature. He says, this is my name, my memorial name by which you call to me, and I remember my covenant. So what has God promised? Well, the blessing of the people to the anointed king is, may Yahweh answer you in the day of trouble, may the name of, of God, the God of Jacob set you on high. Well, why would that name set the anointed one on high? The answer is because he promised to. He promised in 2 Samuel 7, he promised in Psalm 2, that his anointed one will be installed on Zion, his holy hill, that he'll go forth and rule with a rod of iron, that he'll crush those who are against him. And so the people in response to that righteously call out to God and say, all right, the day of trouble is here. May Yahweh our God, who remembers his covenant here today in the day of trouble. Now, all of this all of this makes a little more sense when you think against the backdrop of King Saul. King Saul was anointed, lifted up to the throne, and there, there is this question of who will be the, uh, the anointed one. We don't see the fullness of the promise until King David comes, so we don't know the line yet upon which it comes. But when King Saul reigns, he reigns, and, and although initially righteous, when he calls upon God, he does so ultimately in a way that, that fails to remember God's covenant. So in Second Sam, or sorry, 1 Samuel 13, the people are in trouble. They're fighting against the Philistines, and they have no weapons. They only have the, the, um, the shears and the plows. They have no swords or shields. And they're afraid. They're trembling before the Philistines. They're hiding in the rocks and the crags and the cliffs. And... Saul has retreated to Gilgal, and he's trembling too. He needs, to, he needs to encourage the people, to fill them with the confidence that can only come from God. Because the people cannot win this battle with, with no swords and shields against the mighty Philistines who have subdued them. There is no victory unless God is on their side. The problem occurs when Saul takes it into his hands and he offers a, an ascension offering and a peace offering without waiting for Samuel. So he, he moves ahead and he does it because he's afraid. He's afraid of losing the people. And so he uses then God as a tool to, in, to try to, um, to fill the people, to, to, to encourage the troops by offering this sacrifice to God and calling God to be on his side. And yet Samuel comes immediately after the ascension offering is offered and he rebukes him. He says, you, you haven't waited. You were to wait for me. And a few chapters later, we, we see then the result of Saul's heart. He's given victory and God tells him to destroy completely. And yet he, he doesn't. 
He fails to utterly annihilate the people. Instead, he saves the best of the cows and the sheep. And when Samuel approaches him, he says, why did you do this? He says, well, I, I did it so that I could have the good ascension offerings to bring before God, the good burnt offerings. And then when Samuel says, no, God, God wants obedience better than an ascension offering, Saul says, well, the people made me do it. So behind all of this, we have David come and he writes this psalm in expectation of the fulfillment of God, of the remembrance of God. But what we see in the psalm is that there's, there's two memorials going on. There's two directions to this remembrance. And so in verse 3 he says, or, or the people say, may he remember all of your tributes and all of your ascension offerings, may he find fat. And then parallel to that, at the end of the psalm, we see some in chariots, some in horses, but we remember the name of Yahweh, our God. And so there's a call for God to remember his promise, his covenant promise. But then simultaneously, there's an expression of confidence from the people that we remember that name. And so it goes, it goes in both directions. There's this, this memorial, and it what I want to show you then is that all of the language is built around this. All of the promises in this psalm are built around the fact that we trust in, we remember, we lift up, we find our refuge and our hope in this name, the name of Yahweh, who keeps his covenant promises. And so David is grounding himself in this in opposition to Saul, who, who utilized God instead of calling on God. So may Yahweh answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob set you on high. May he send you help from the sanctuary and support from Zion. Just a side note there in verse 2. The, the sanctuary is the holy place. So may he send you help out from the holy place, the place where God's name has been set. From Zion, also the place where God's name has been set. As you read through the Old Testament, you see that God says, I've made for myself a house and I've put my name in it. So that by the time you get to the bigger picture of the house in 1 Kings 8, Solomon is praying to God and he says, put your name on this house so that whenever we pray, whenever we call on the God who keeps his covenant, we'll bow down to this house, we'll repent of our sins, and you please hear us when we call on your name pointed towards this house. And God says, yes, I will. I will forgive your sins when you call on my name here. When you, when, when you call on me as the covenant-keeping God, I'll... I'll forgive, I'll answer, and I'll come. And so this prayer of blessing, may Yahweh answer you in the day of trouble when, when the kings of Psalm 2 have set their plan and they're raging against God's anointed, may you answer now because you promised. And may the name of the God of Jacob, who has now been named as Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God, may he lift you up out of, out of this fight and set you on high in his sanctuary. May he send you help from Zion. And so the, the request then is that God listen to the prayers of your anointed one and go out with him as he fights. Go fight alongside of him. And we see that time and time again in, in David's life, God comes and he fights alongside, alongside of him. So that when there is no hope, you don't need a multitude. You only need God. Then he says in verse 3, May he remember your tributes and find your burnt offerings or your ascension offerings fat. 
Your translations probably say meal offerings and burnt offerings. Uh, I'm sure many of us know then that in Leviticus that's referring to the offerings of Leviticus chapter 1, which is the, the burnt offering, or the, the, the word means ascension, so ascending up into God's presence, and the offering of Leviticus chapter 2, which is the, the um, tribute offering, properly translated. These two offerings predate the, the tabernacle or the law, so you'll find them throughout the book of Genesis. There's a tribute offering and there's an ascension offering that begins all the way back in Genesis 4, that Cain and Abel bring tribute before God. And so the picture of those two offerings, just by way of reminder, is that the offerer takes and puts his hand on the head of, of the bull or the animal, and he's, he's uh, identified then with that animal. And the animal is then burnt up entirely in a picture of an ascension into God's presence. So who can, who can enter the presence of God? Well, the one who has clean hands and a pure heart. And God reminds us that we don't start that way. And so we come with a bloody offering into his presence. And so the, the picture is all, always of going back into the Garden of Eden through the flaming sword of the seraphim. We have to die and enter to, in order to enter God's presence. We come through the blood of our Savior Jesus. And then on top of that is placed a tribute offering. So you come with an offering of, of your person and your works, and it's placed on top of the ascension offering. As you come into God's presence, it's a, the recognition that God is the king. So we come then, we come with our tithes, with our offerings, to proclaim that everything we have, every good thing that, that, that we have has been given to us. And so God calls us then in memorial to, to bring to bring the grain that he produces out of the ground, even by our effort, to bring, to bring the money that he gives us throughout the week. We bring those tithes and offerings into the presence, not on their own, because on their own they're filthy rags, they're worthless, and God has no use for them. But entering through the bloody sacrifice, God desires our tribute and acknowledgement of his kingship. And so the congregation is singing to the king, and they're singing this way, may God remember, may he look upon your tribute, and your, may he find your ascension offering fat. In essence, may he find it favorable. Remember, Saul brought that ascension offering. He, he burned up the animal in God's presence, and, and God looked at him like he looked at Cain. This, this is unacceptable. He had no regard for that offering. And so the prayer is, may he find all of your ascensions and all of your tributes acceptable. May, may he call you into his presence and may you find your way there into the house of God. And at the end of verse 3, we're told, pause, Selah. So pause and think about what God is calling, calling you to. I, I, I want to take a minute and think about this. I, I think uh, we, we can understand uh, why the congregation would sing this about David why they would sing this about, about his successors, or even why David would write this and sing this about his sons, about Solomon and Rehoboam, that they would, they would find their offerings acceptable. But I want to take a, a minute and think about our Savior. Right? So as we sing this, one proper way to sing this song is to sing it about Jesus. We're singing a blessing upon the, the anointed one of Psalm 2. 
May Yahweh answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob set you on high. May he send you help from the sanctuary and support you from Zion. May he remember all your tribute and all your ascension offerings. Selah. Who should have sung this song? Think through the New Testament. Jesus goes into the, up to the Mount of Olives. He takes his disciples with him. The day of trouble has come. And he tells them to pray. And he goes off and he's praying. This should have been their prayer. Here is the anointed one. Yahweh, bless him because you promised. Hear him. Come and, and rescue him. Send help from your sanctuary and support him from Zion. And remember, remember his tribute and his ascension offering. Well, of course, Jesus is offering himself. So may he find, may, may God on high, may Yahweh, the God who keeps covenant, find this offering acceptable. Well, what is the tribute of Jesus? If you would, turn with me to Ephesians 4. I promise I'll try to tie all this together. Ephesians 4, Paul writes this, I therefore, the prisoner of, of the Lord, entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing forbearance to one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There's one body, one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who's over all, through all, and in all. But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says... When he ascended on high, so when he ascended into the presence of God at the resurrection, sorry, at, at the ascension, he led captive with him a host of captive and he gave gifts of men. It's a quotation of Psalm 68 in which he can either there receive or take gifts of men, but here in Ephesians chapter 4, it's presented as a gift before the Father. He's ascended into the throne room of God to his right hand, and he brings with him in that ascension the gifts of men. And so Ephesians sees this played out by the church coming and ascending with Jesus, were brought captive with him into the right hand of God and presented before him as the tribute of our Savior, Jesus. And these gifts of men are given for the building up of his temple, of the temple of God. So he says then in verse 9, Now this, he ascended. What does it mean except he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended as himself also, he who ascended far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. He gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the service, for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith, of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to, measure, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. So Christ brings with him this gift of men added to added to the temple for the purpose of building it up and beautifying it. This is the tribute of our Savior bought by his death on the cross. This is his work being done, the work of his hands being worked out in our midst, presented 
before God on high. This is the work of the anointed one. It's us. Done for this purpose, to bring about the maturing of the body of Christ, to bring about the attaining of unity within that body. So he presents us as a gift to the Father for the building up of the church. This is all done then in Ephesians with the name of God placed upon us. So in, in, in Ephesians chapter 3, he's praying, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom the whole family, Jew and Gentile, derives its name. That name has been placed upon us, and he's lifting us up with him so that we go along with Christ into the presence of God. As we think about singing this psalm for Jesus, it doesn't stop with the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane. This song continues to be sung for God and His Anointed One because that work is not finished. He has been installed upon Zion, but the finished work of all of the kings and all of the nations being brought to heal in Psalm 2 being bowed down in reverence is not complete. So when we cry out to God and we pray this blessing upon the work of Christ, we can think about the, the, the book of Acts where Jesus has ascended on high. He sits at the right hand of God and his work and his deed continues. All that Jesus continues to do and say is work through the book of Acts in his body right now. And so when we pray this prayer, may Yahweh answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob set you on high. May he send you help from the sanctuary and support from Zion. May he remember all of your tribute and all of your ascensions, offerings, find fat, Selah. We're talking about the completed work of Psalm 2 when God sets his anointed on high and he reigns and he rules over all of his enemies. So we continue then to pray this for our Savior Jesus as he works through his body now. Verse 4. May he grant you your heart and fulfill all of your counsel. This is in opposition to the counsel of the wicked and the the counsel of the kings that they take together to stand against God and his, his anointed. The prayer is, may Yahweh God, the one who remembers his covenant, give you your heart. This only makes sense if that heart belongs to God. We read, we read John 16, in which Jesus applies this same blessing to us. He'll give you what you ask. But it's done within a heart that's been transformed through through these sacrifices being brought into the presence of, of God. We'll talk more about that in just a minute. And then we have this expression of confidence. Verse 5, we'll sing for joy over your salvation. In the name of our God, we'll set up our banners. May Yahweh fulfill all of your petitions. So in this, embedded in this picture of, of blessing upon the king, as you cry out to God, may God hear him, fulfill his counsel, hear his heart, fulfill all of his petitions, then we have this confidence. We'll sing for joy over your salvation, over your victory. And in the name of our God, we'll set up our banners. So the congregation, us, assembly, as we sing and as we pray, we look to God and we're crying this out to him, and we have this confidence too. We'll sing for joy over the salvation of the anointed one, over his victory, over us and over the entire rest of the world. And in the name of our God, we'll set up our banners. 
This is a special word for banners. It only appears here with a derivative in the book of Numbers and in the Song of Solomon. So, so this, isn't, this isn't the word for banners that we find in the name uh, Jehovah Nissi, if, if you recall, recall that expression. Instead, this word for banners comes out of the beginning of the book of Numbers in which the, the nation of Israel is uh, set all about the tabernacle. And so there, there's a roll call, and each one is, is given their position then surrounding this tabernacle. And at the end of the numbering, they're told to lift up their standard. So you're all going to assemble under this banner, each one a banner of your house, around the house of God. And so you have then this, this twofold picture. The banner, the banner of Judah is a banner for Judah, but it's got God's name stamped upon it. It's, it's, it's waving there. They're their own tribe, but God's name is stamped upon it. It's centered around his house. We see that picked up here. When the salvation comes, in the name of our God, we'll set up our banners. And the idea is that God's name is on those banners. We, we come and we proclaim victory under the flag, the, the insignia of the banner of God. In Song of Solomon, then, this, this occurs in, in four places. <clears throat> We're not going to go there, but if you want to look them up later, in, in chapter 6, verse 4, 10, and 11, and uh, also in chapter 2, verse 4, you'll find this word for banners, in which the bride proclaims that there is a banner of love placed over me. Well, it's the banner of, of her lover, her husband, the king, the anointed one. He places that banner with his, his name over it. And in that picture, she is the conquered one. She's the one, the, the, sub, the subdued one. But the picture grows throughout the, 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 the book of Song of Solomon so that later on she says that, or he says of her, that she's beautiful like an army with banners. And so she grows up into the army under her husband, the anointed one. And she waves then that, that same banner with the name of our God placed upon it. We have the name of God stamped upon us. Verse 6. Now I know that Yahweh saves his anointed. So this would be sung by David or Solomon or Rehoboam. Even though the national anthem of England is based on this, it probably is not sung by King Charles because you have to take up the name of God in order to be able to sing this song. Now I know that Yahweh saves his anointed. He'll answer him from his holy heaven with the saving strength of his right hand. So the king hears the people and he responds with confidence. God keeps his promises. Our God keeps his covenant. And so then the people again in verse 7, some in chariots, some in horses, but we remember the name of Yahweh, our God. They have bowed down and fallen, but we've risen and stood upright. Save, O Yahweh, may the king answer us in the day that we call. So this reference in verse 7, some in chariots, some in horses, it should immediately remind you of Exodus, the same place where God gives his memorial name. He says, I keep my promises. This is the name which you call upon me to call me to remember, to, to remember the covenant which I made with you. There in, 
in that place we find don't trust in horses and chariots because God, the one who keeps his covenant, is on your side. If you call upon him, he comes. And the horses and the chariots are nothing. Some of your translations may say we boast in the name or we trust in the name. But properly it is we remember the name. We remember the name. All, all, it's all included. We boast in that name. We trust in that name. But the word remember has a specific significance. It's attached to God remember our sacrifices. There's this dual direction of memory in which we're calling on the name of memory, Yahweh. God, remember your covenant. We remember your name. In a minute, we're going to come before the table and we'll, we'll see that enacted. We have a memorial, a table of remembrance in which we remember and God remembers that he has made promises to us. He calls us into his presence and we call back and say, God, remember Remember what you promised. We remember the name of Yahweh our God. They have bowed down and fallen, but we have risen and stood upright. So there in Egypt, as they went through the Red Sea, calling upon the name of Yahweh, they're backed up. They have no horses, no chariots, just, just like the nations that come after them. They're backed up against a wall. They call on God's name and he answers. And then finally, he says, save, save, O Yahweh, and may the king answer us in the day that we call. This is a, a simple psalm. Save. But as we read through this psalm and think about this psalm, it's easy to first put ourselves as the, the subject or the, the object of, of that save. Save us. But the psalm is prim primarily pointed at first God's anointed. In order for us to see the fullness of the psalm, we have to see ourselves as attached underneath God's anointed. He saves his king and through his king he saves his people. Remember how this section of the Psalter is built. We see David crying out to God in Psalm 17 and 18, and then God's answer, and that's parallel at the end of, of, of 2 Samuel. David cries out, and then the, the people respond because underneath the king who's saved, the one who's righteous and rules righteously, the people flourish like the, the fresh grass under the warm sun. And so we cry out, save, O Yahweh, and may the king answer us in the day that we call. So how do we, how do we pray this now? I already said we can, we can continue to pray because Jesus, the anointed one, sits on the throne of God. But if you think about that connection to Ephesians chapter 4, in which he's brought the tribute of his people before God, he's raised up ambassadors in his name. We should pray this same prayer for those who serve underneath the head, Jesus. Now, for that to be true, they have to have God's name upon them. So we can't rightfully sing this for our president if he does not trust in the name of the Lord.
I introduced the sermon with this idea of Christian nationalism. And it, it has, it has some, some good points and some problems depending on where you draw it from. One of the problem areas can be when, when Zionism is equated with America. When we see the United States as the fulfillment of, of God's promises. The fulfillment of God's promises takes place in the person of Jesus. And so we first and foremost, we sing for him. But we should be thinking about his promise to, to bring the world to heal. We want every king to bow the knee before him, to proclaim the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We want to see that happen, and God has promised that he will do it. So if we hear the words of this psalm, we're to pray that God, God would bring that promise to fruition. Then he would do it through the ascension and the tribute of Jesus, through us, that he would complete that work. Save, O Yahweh, and may the king answer us in the day that we call. If you would bow with me in prayer. Father, we come into your presence, and we are your people. You've made us into your house. You've placed your name upon us. You, you've even made us anointed in the footsteps of our Savior Jesus. You've called us a royal priesthood so that we have a share in this psalm underneath our King Jesus. And Lord, we pray today that you would answer in the day of trouble. We know that we've, we've seen you remember your covenant. You've done it in days past, and you will continue to do it because you are Yahweh, our God. What you promise will not fail. And so, Lord, we, we pray. <laughs> we pray that the work of our Savior Jesus would be brought to its final end. We want to see our nation in subjection underneath you. We want to see all nations subjected to you. Lord, we pray that you would do that. <laughs> we sit in the privileged position of seeing our King Jesus sitting at your right hand. His counsel and his petition is before you. And Lord, we pray that you would fulfill it, that you would fulfill every desire of his heart and that you would work it out in and through us in our hearts. We thank you that you've given us his spirit so that those desires are working to fulfill and permeate us. Lord, we pray that you would be pleased with us this morning as we call upon you. Save Yahweh. And may our Savior Jesus answer us today on the day that we call. We pray these things in his name. Amen. <laughs>